Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. My name is Pat Contry, and my guest this week is Kelsey Lewin. She's a retro gamer, retro collector. She appears in YouTube videos. She appears on the Metal Jesus Rocks channel. And she is co-owner of the Pink Gorilla Retro Game Stores in the Seattle area. Welcome, Kelsey. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I haven't seen you since Portland Retro Gaming Expo, the mecca of the retro gaming scene. How did you uh how did you do out there this uh, past fall? Did you okay? Yeah, yeah, I did great. Uh that's mostly a show. I mean, I go because I love it and I would be there regardless of whether or not they wanted me there, you know? I mean, I, I did a couple panels this year, but but I would do it even if they if they didn't want me there. So, we had a booth, oh, sure. but um, in general we're mo- mostly there to buy stuff or at least i am <laughs> i hope to break even for the collection or for the store yes both <laughs> yeah both <laughs> is that because there's so much opportunity to find maybe some rare or niche items that don't normally walk into the store or is it hard to keep games in stock at pink gorilla yeah i mean it's it's all of the above the um the nice thing about the Retro Gaming Expo is sometimes you can find people on the last day who, you know, they, like, flew in. And so they've got boxes of stuff they really don't want to fly back with them. Um, so you can usually strike a couple deals that way. I mean, you know, for the most part, people are selling things for just about retail or maybe a little bit under there. So it's not like it's not like going to a flea market or anything. But it's still pretty cool to find some interesting things that we don't see in very often we've got you know a couple regular customers we'll try to look for things specifically for them that they've been looking for and of course for myself and the other employees what was your highlight item what was the big item that you picked oh, up gosh. this year that you're like oh man this is great uh well it, it's got to be the super nintendo entertainment bike which i won at the auction so <laughs> you did you did win that and it was funny because I mentioned that to you when we were going back in our Twitter DMs about, you know, I'm like, I think I mentioned it not realizing you're the one that won that. I was like, yeah. I think I remember that being there and you actually won it. <laughs> I was I was like a little bit of a celebrity the next day because everyone was like, how are you planning on getting that home? Oh, you're the one that won the, the bike. What are you doing with that? Um, and I'm lucky that I have a store to shove it in the back of because I definitely don't have room in my apartment for it, but... <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to take it apart and transport it in the back of we, a truck? Or yeah, a... so we had a like SUV with us that we had brought, but the I mean, even still with all the merchandise we were bringing back, um, we had to take it apart a little bit. We had to take the seat off of it, and um, I think that was all we did. Actually, was just take the the seat off of it. So it didn't. So, do you have the the games for it? I have a couple of games. I have just the mountain bike rally one. The speed racer combo cart is a little too rich for my blood, but a little too pricey, right? Yeah, goes for like a couple grand yeah. just for the cartridge. Yeah, or it goes and it's for. not even any good. So you know. <laughs> sure. So so this that's a prime item that gets into the mind of how insane us retro collectors are, right? Because here's a gigantic exercise bike that. Is it's esoteric that no one really owned back then. Probably if you bought it, you used it like ten times before you realize I'm not getting a good workout. And it's not fun, right? <laughs> so you see this item, but it is incredibly rare, and you have to have it. You just have to own it. It's like it's it's in front of you. It's you're driven to want to bid on this item, and even if you got a pretty good deal, like you even said, I don't know where I can store this item. 
but now you have a sought-after item. I mean, so when you see something like that, what, what's the first thing that pops into your head when you see an item like that up well, for auction? I am definitely... I'm a person who collects, I would say, primarily weird stuff. Like, that's kind of the my bread and butter of my collection is I collect odd things. I've got um, a Wonderswan fishing sonar. I've got a blood glucose monitor for the <laughs> DS. I have all these, like, crazy things that uh, probably sold incredibly poorly. People don't even know they exist because they're just so weird. I don't even know who they were made for, you know? Um, so every time I see something like that, I mean, it's exciting for me. I like that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's like I, I wouldn't even go after some of that stuff. For example, the Miracle Piano, I've had probably a dozen opportunities to own that in the box. And that's a big, gigantic box for that, the NES uh, slash Super Nintendo piano. And it's just so big and bulky. And I'm like, that was sort of like my line where I was like, do I really need the the Miracle Piano. I mean, I have the cartridge. Shouldn't that be good enough? But for you, like, this is, like, not a one-of-a-kind item, but there's very few of these things left yeah. out there in its original form. And I have to be kind of choosy because, I mean, like you said, it takes up a lot of room, so I can't just buy everything enormous and rare and weird. Um, I have to be a little bit choosy with it. I think they also had the Wii in, uh, Exertainment bike for sale at this auction. I think they did. And so I, I couldn't get both, you know? <laughs> Couldn't justify having both the Super Nintendo and the Wii one. What was interesting about that auction at, at Portland was that that's some of the heavy hitting spenders of probably yeah. the U.S. Right, that show up there. There's some. I mean, I only bid on a few things, but there was some cool stuff that went for sale. Like you said, the the uh, the Wii glucose meter, which by the way was cheaper currently, brand new online. You could find it. I was looking at Dane Anderson from Nintendo which next to me. I'm like. This is cheaper, right? Then can't you find this? And like I looked on Amazon, you could have bought it cheaper on Amazon. That, so that's exactly what I did. Well, I, that was another one that I was bidding on. And I actually, I bought it that same weekend, but I didn't buy it at the auction because I was watching it. I, I had an, a listing up on eBay on my phone. And I was like, well, I'll bid until it's more expensive than this listing on eBay. <laughs> and then it went, it went for like twice as much as what it was listed for on uh, eBay. So I'm like, okay, I'll just buy this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's that psychology, that psychology totally. right, of the auction well, and the war, and you want to. And to be yeah. fair, it seems like a very rare item, and I'm sure that it's one of those things where, you know, if someone like Jason did a YouTube video about it, maybe there's that one guy on eBay or that one guy on Amazon who still has a couple copies of it for pretty cheap, but like, those will go, and then all of a sudden there's none left out in the retail yeah, world. Yeah, well, the first. <laughs> the first thing that I think of is like that's made by a major pharmaceutical company, so they made up millions of those. That's, that's the first true. thing I thought is like if the, if that's made by like Merck, they made millions of those. They just pumped those out. Yeah, they might have you a know. ton that's, of those still still left somewhere. There's got to be new old stock somewhere. I think Dane was telling me that he saw them at his local like CVS or Rite Aid on clearance or something. Like, really? You know, like bargain, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just to get rid of them. Because how many people even that had some sort of diabetic condition maybe even knew that existed? It's like, who even knows? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, and, for, and for, the <laughs> packaging to me doesn't make it obvious what it is. Like, you have to actually sure. read all of the text on it. There's not like a nice image that shows. It, it doesn't easily show what it is. So I think. So if you're like a 65, 65 year old that has diabetes, you come home with this item. Oh, it's just like a glucose meter. Oh, I need a video game yeah. system for this. What? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like gamified and stuff. I've I've heard that none of the strips in it, you know, the actual like reader strips, um, will work anymore. I've heard they're all expired by now. But I'm sure you could just buy more. Oh sure. So so how did you get into retro game collecting? What systems did you originally grow up with? 
so I'm younger, so my first, the first game thing I ever owned was um, a Game Boy, and it was my dad's Game Boy. Uh, so, I mean, that, that goes back a ways, but the first actual console, home console I had was the N64. So, yeah, okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm young. So, that's a nice way of saying, Pat, you're old. Okay. You're <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll say N64 was your first home console. Yeah. So, you are probably and easily at least 12 years younger than me. So, okay, I kind of know how old you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look it, though. Or you don't look it. One of those, one of those two. Um, yeah, so I started. <laughs> so, so you grew up with the N sixty four. I grew up with the N sixty four. My my parents were relatively cool about video games, but they w didn't want me to have more than I think two systems at a time. I could have one handheld and one game system, so I would always have to sell it off if I wanted the new one. So when the GameCube came out, I had to go trade in my gold Toys R Us edition Nintendo sixty four for three dollars to GameStop. Not even oh, kidding. Oh, no. That actually happened. Oh, no. So, <laughs> I know. But uh, after that, you know, I mean, I got basically every, almost every console that came out. I didn't get, you know, both the PS2 and the Xbox at the same time, but I had them both at one point or played them at, at neighbors' houses or whatever. Um, but it wasn't until I was looking at colleges, actually, that I even realized that people collecting video games and old video games was a thing. So I went, I visited Seattle and I saw this store called Pink Gorilla Games and I walked in and I was like, this is awesome. Look at all of this like Japanese stuff and all of these, you know, old games. And I actually, while I was there, I picked up um, a copy of Pokemon Stadium, I think, and, and maybe one other game, just some games that I played as a kid. And I think that's how it starts for most people is you're like, you find the games that you played as a kid and then you kind of just get into it from there you're like you know what it's not just the games that I played how about all the games I didn't play um, so that was when I first started getting into it and uh, you know so once I moved you went to back Seattle, and recaptured I'm sorry you went back and you recaptured the games from your your youth yeah, first exactly and I, I had held on to all of my Pokemon games throughout the years um, on at least the Game Boy versions of all of them you know Game Boy Game Boy Color Game Boy Advance DS. I had been playing those. I never stopped playing games, but they weren't really important for me to hold on to um, until I realized that that was a thing people do, and it seemed really fun to me. I don't know. I wanted to wanted to just try some games I had never tried before, and it, I thought it would be cool to have a, a small shelf full of cool ga old games that I had never tried. So one of the first things I bought when I moved to Seattle was a Sega Genesis, which I did not have growing up. Um, and just got to play a bunch of the old classics. I mean, you know, I played the Sonic games via, like, the Sonic Gems collection on the GameCube and that sort of thing. And there was a Genesis at, uh, like, a daycare I went to. So I had played a Genesis before, but it, I had never owned one. Um, and I, that makes me sound super young, I know, but... <laughs> I was going to say, you weren't, like, a toddler at the daycare, were you? No, no, no. I was... It was a, it was a daycare... Um, for like my dad's work, so it wasn't like a okay. wasn't a daycare for like children, children or like teeny tiny children. It was I think anywhere from like four to eight year olds there. So I, and I was at the upper range of that, so probably seven or eight. Okay, so but, for, oh, kind of a similar story to me. Around college age or right before it, you start to collect, and 
get the games you had when you were a child because you had gotten rid of them. Mm-hmm. And you got rid of your system. I did the same thing, except I traded mine into Funkoland. <laughs> probably 94, 95 I did that before rebuying it again a few years later. Um, so how did you make that transition? You, you've made the the rare, probably coveted transition of eventually becoming an owner, or at least co-owner, of a retro game store. Yeah. it's So it, where, did that, where did that lead from? It's not a very interesting story, unfortunately. Um, I moved to Seattle. I knew that I really wanted to work for um, this game store that I had visited when I first went there. Um, so I applied and eventually got a job there and uh, became a manager relatively quickly. was a manager there for about four years or so, four or five years. And towards the end of that... Um, the former owner who had was you know the original owner who founded it in 2005 he was like you know i really just don't want to do this anymore he basically hadn't been doing anything anyways you know he we sent the financial reports to him at the end of the day and that sort of thing but that was that was about it he wasn't like going into the stores he wasn't working in the stores and so he just decided he didn't really want to do it anymore um, and so me and one of the other managers just offered to buy him out, and that's exactly what we did. So, not a not a super so exciting start- story. <laughs> what what year did you start working for? What year did you were you a co-owner? Um, so I've been a co-owner now for about two and a half, almost, or I'm sorry, one and a half, almost two years. Um, it'll okay. be two years in June, I think, or July. So 2015. Or 2016, I guess, was when we took over. Were you working for them in 2011 or no? Uh, no, okay. Uh, no, 2012. So, okay. I may, so I'm, I'm, getting my, I'm getting my years wrong a little bit here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. The reason I asked that, because I remember, uh, I'm trying to remember every worker, but I went to the Pink Gorilla when I was at uh, PAX Prime in 2011. That's when I did the panel with with uh, James Rolfe. We we premiered the NWC video we did, um, and the Pink Gorilla store had one of the things I regretted. One of the very few things I regretted not buying that I passed up on. And you're gonna slap me today for not buying it. But at the time, it wasn't that great a deal. There was a box, complete in box, and I mean it had everything, TurboGrafx CD system with everything in it. It had the sample. CD, it had everything in the baggies, and it was only like $200, which at the time was, it was worth a little bit more than that, but not that much more, believe it or not, only six years ago, or at this point, six and a half. So it was so huge, I was worried about the shipping costs. And they said they would have shipped it back for me, but I was like, eh, it's not worth it then, and I'm not getting a deal because the shipping's going to be more than on eBay. So I passed it up, and I regretted that ever since, <laughs> because while I did eventually, while I eventually did get one in the box, it was missing like the little top styrofoam. Yeah, it didn't have the promo a karaoke CD, which is hard to find. So I was like, no, like that was probably <laughs> one of a few times I passed up something. That got away. So I was just wondering if you were working there at the time. That's all. No, I I did Pax Prem 2012, but um, okay. I believe my I'm not great with years, but I know I started in 2012. If that helps, because so. <laughs> that all was right. when I moved to Seattle. Um, so what did you quickly learn from from working at a game store like that? Did you learn something more about the collecting scene, about retro gamers uh, themselves you didn't know about? Yeah, well, I mean, I was very lucky in that uh, the general manager at the time was huge into the game collecting community. He, you know, he had a big collection, and he basically just kind of 
he saw that I was getting interested in it, and he basically just did the rest of the work, you know, just showing me what was cool, what I should pick up, and so I ended up, I mean, I spent most of my paycheck for the first probably six months working there just on uh, buying <laughs> buying fun stuff. You know, I was, I was living in a dorm at the time. It was my freshman year of college, so um, I didn't have a, a ton of expenses after I paid, you know, after food and stuff was paid for, so I was just buying games. Um, and got really into it. Uh, I don't really have like a, I don't think there was like one thing that really taught me everything there is to know about the game collecting community, but just the more I played and the more I saw, I got really into the weird stuff. And I, the first one that I can remember um, is kind of ironically, because we were just talking about the uh, blood glucose thing, was Packy and Marlon. That came into the store, the Super Nintendo game that's about diabetes. And that was just like the most hilarious thing to me. I don't know why, but at the time I found that to be so interesting. I know they made a couple of those, and I know that edutainment software, I mean, I had a PC and stuff. I knew that edutainment was a thing. I just was surprised that anyone had actually put a diabetes edutainment game on a Super Nintendo. And so that was the first thing I can remember being like, I got to have that. That's so weird. <laughs> that was probably with me like the bible games on the nes the wisdom tree games that i had no idea existed when the nes was first out because how would you know that yeah once i discover them like i have to there. have every single one of those yeah i have to i mean i went to my funko <laughs> land every other week until i saw that bright blue bible adventures game on the shelf and eventually they got it because that's the most common of those seven uh, wisdom tree games and they had it and i was like oh my god i found Bible Adventures at a Funko Land. I didn't have to cheat and buy it on eBay. Like that was a big deal because at the time the game was probably like a three four dollar game at a, at Funko right. Land or five dollars. You know what I mean? And it was actually yeah. one of the games on their list. That's kind so of surprising. There was a different feeling actually. back then. Did did Funko Land Funko just Land take literally everything? I mean, I'm I'm surprised that they had the Bible games. That I don't know. I would have to look at. I do have a um, a price newsletter still or newspaper still where it has stave events for only 29 cents mm-hmm. um, but i'm pretty <laughs> sure they have a chunk of the unlicensed games on there because they would come in yeah you know they would come in they were they were sold retail stores maybe not toys r us but but the, t- the tanking games were sold at toys r us right. but for something like a color dreams game or something like that you might have to go off the beaten path go to a, a mall store like electronic boutique or egghead software electronic uh software etc something like that in order to find something that was that was that strange, but that's what drew me in when I started learning about the weird stuff, like Wally Bear and the No Gang, a weird anti-drug game. And that's like, oh my god! Not just do I want the games that like you the games I had as a kid. Now I want the games that are also weird or things that I didn't even know existed and get into it that way and get like drawn in gradually. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely like a big, a big thing for me now. It's just the weird, weird stuff. So your so your collecting career, let's just say, is about six to seven years old since yeah. you've been collecting. I, w- about? I would that that sounds about right. Okay, what have you seen in those six to seven years, from say between two thousand ten two thousand eleven now? What has surprised you? The trends, the changes, anything that that's you know kind of stuck out to you? To me now, um, it feels kind of predictable. Honestly, I feel like I know where. I know which things are going to go up in general, maybe not specific games necessarily, but I can see where, you know, 
the trends have have gone. We've got we had NES was really expensive for a long time. Now the games, at least the common ones, are starting to settle down a little bit. Um, Super Nintendo is probably about the same way right now, where the common ones are starting to settle a little bit. And we've got N64 on like an all time high, and GameCube going up, and it just seems like it's a it's a kind of doing the wave through the generations, right? Like <laughs> mm-hmm. whatever people are about. 20 in the early 20s to mid 20s right now what they grew up with that's what's going to be on the upward swing and anything that's you know like the Wii so I'm trying to pick up a bunch of Wii and Wii U stuff right now as it's cheap because that's you know if you go purely by that um, that's the next upward swing and it's not because I necessarily want to like resell it or anything it's just that I know that I would rather pay Twenty bucks for the last story now than the sixty dollars. I think it's going to be in a, in five or ten years, right? So in theory, then the Wii collecting will get hot like two thousand twenty four. Like that's what it, we're yeah, <laughs> Some, something along those lines. And I and Wii's a little different because Wii has a so much shovelware and B sold better than all of those other systems. So I think it is going to be a little bit different. Um, but the Wii U is going to be an especially expensive system. Uh, in the coming decades or so, as long as collecting, you think so just because less people bought it. Yes, as long as collecting is still a thing. You know, a lot of people talk about the bubble bursting completely and just no one feeling into this hobby anymore. Um, and I, I know that there's some of us who are never going to stop collecting, but you know, the sort of upsurge in in popularity in the game collecting community, as long as that's still a thing, I think we use going to be. Probably the most expensive Nintendo console to collect for, but even if they still have brand new old stock sitting everywhere, and that you know, well, they never they will have <laughs> they will have some games, but I mean, there's already some Wii U games that are over a hundred dollars that are just trash. I mean, things like uh, the Crudes and uh, Hello Kitty Racing and stuff; those are over a hundred dollars. They're shovelware, right? But there's just so few maybe, copies of maybe, them out there. <laughs> well, the Wii U library isn't that big, right? What's the Le- Wii U library at? I'm not sure, um, but it can't be. Let me could not it. have reached Seven, a thousand. Seven forty-five. So unlike the Wii, this is probably a little bit more. If you wanted to be a completionist, seven forty-five isn't as bad, right? Than what the Wii had. That's so actually that actually like, seems like, high oh. to me. Uh, that's surprising. I don't think I've ever seen more than a hundred Wii U games in the same place before. <laughs> Let's see. Well, that well, that would include all territories, though, too. So ah. yeah. So it's probably actually. I don't think it's that much because I'm looking at some of that and that list were unreleased. So yeah, I think we're getting uh, to a strange yeah. point, in, a strange point in time <laughs> where I think you'll have less and less collectors go for a complete set of games. So you're always gonna have some people that say, "Yeah, I want that complete Wii set." I mean, the first confirmed one just we talked about it on the CU podcast about six seven months ago that you had. Someone be the first to fully document what's a complete Wii physical game collection. He was like the first guy to really do it. So it'll happen with the Wii U. It'll happen with the Switch. But it's going to get more complicated as you get towards digital versus physical, you know, and things of that nature. What games only came out of one or both? What does it mean to have a complete set if you get in digital? But I I think, at least in my opinion, we're going to get to that point where it's going to be just less and less people will want a full set of games. I totally you know, agree with uh, that because it's the newer stuff is, yeah, I mean, like you said, there's thousands instead of what it used to be, like, you know, six or seven hundred 
games released for a system. I mean, look at look at the DS. There's some games on there that still. I think there's an. I want to say it's an Animaniacs game that people aren't really sure if it exists or not because no one's really found a copy yet. But all signs point to it have existed. Um, so I know a couple people wow. with complete DS collections, but they're missing that one. Um, that one and maybe one or two more that are like, these I think exist, but we haven't quite confirmed it yet. So It's sort of like the Atari 2600 set. Oh, There's no one that has a full 2600 set. I mean, set. what even would be... Because at what point do you draw the line? You know, if you had to mail order exactly. it, if, was it someone's garage? I mean, does that count? So yeah, Do you have to have Red Sea Crossing and Gamma Attack? What about the birthday card? Right. You know, and, and at that point, we're talking about games that... There's only a few confirmed to exist for about a handful of games. So it's nearly impossible for even one person to have one of each of all of those. Right. And so one of the biggest collectors is Rich Weiss. And he one of the biggest Atari 2600 collectors in the world, if not the biggest. And he doesn't have a complete Yeah, he's. Atari I think he does have the literally most complete Atari 2600 collection in the world. But I know he's missing sure. uh, birthday. And um, probably, I think Red Sea Crossing as well. So, um, but he, I mean, he has Air Raid. He has a couple of the incredibly like there are only three in the world type things. Oh yeah, um, it's such a weird thing. Because <laughs> yeah, like I said, people people were making them in their basement and advertising in a magazine that like ten people saw that advertisement and like four people ordered it. Right. So does that really count in essence? Yeah, you know, it's it's a weird question to ask, and gets at maybe the heart of the psyche behind our OCD of wanting to complete a collection. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I've never tried. Oh, actually, that's not true. Never tried. I have. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I forgot. I'm going for a complete Wonder Swan collection, but that's that's oh, doable. Well, how big is that, though? Uh, I mean, two hundred twenty-ish. Um, oh, that's not bad. That's like couple, going after his. Yeah, there's a couple games in there that are going to be basically impossible. Um, uh, Tenori On, which is more like a uh, music program than it is a game. There's only 120 of those in the in the world, and they were sold at an art exhibit in Japan. Wow. Um, and then the Mama Mite Wonder Swan, which was a uh, pregnancy tracker for the Wonder Swan. And I have been told by people in Japan who are big Wonder Swan collectors to give up. You're never going to find it. <laughs> How many did they make of that one? No one knows, but there have been like oh, no a few found and most of the ones that have been found are like yellowed and like really gross. <laughs> so <laughs> one one level above a, a guy making Atari games in his garage in nineteen eighty three. Yeah. One level above that. Yeah, they were apparently uh. sold in like <laughs> I guess Japan has pregnancy stores. I don't think we have those here. Like stores that are specifically for, you know, it's got all all the things you would need throughout uh, being pregnant. Not and just like not just like, stuff for the baby, but pregnancy. Yeah, right? yeah. So I mean, like, I don't I don't even know what you would find there. I guess like vitamins, prenatal vitamins, and uh, uh, swaddling blankets. Apparel and clothes. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know that sort of thing. So. I guess that's what they where they were sold. That's what I've been told. There's very very little information about it online. So. Do you see there being more? I made the argument with Ian before that I think he kind of agrees that Nintendo consoles in and of themselves have a quote unquote more collectability and will going forward than say someone trying to get a, a whole PS2 collection or Xbox 360 because 
of the exclusivity of those primary games that everyone knows and loves, first party games. And the fact that, you know, Nintendo's sort of like the Disney of video right. games, so that's always gonna have that <laughs> special appeal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had a complete original Xbox collection in the store at one point. Someone traded in every single game, all uh, eight or nine hundred. I can't remember the exact number anymore. Wow. Um, but yeah, every every original Xbox game that was released in the states, as well as they didn't have Metal Wolf Chaos, but they had a couple of the Japanese exclusives. Um, so, but I mean, that was it was neat for people and we sold a couple of the rarer ones pretty quick you know stubs the zombie Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing went relatively quick but you know so much of it sat around and i you know i'm i'm sure we still have some of the sports games and that sort of thing that were traded in you have like two-thirds of the library still sitting yeah i mean it's just not as exciting for people and i try to especially for original xbox because i think it's a great console i try to turn people on it more often just because it's you, you know, you can get the console with all the hookups for like 35 bucks. You can get plenty of really good games for under $10. And you can find them at thrift stores pretty often, too. Uh, you know, oh, much they more give so. Away. Flea, flea markets, yeah. I mean, a dollar each for Xbox games. Like, they, they can't get rid of them. If you go to something like the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, you'll see a lot of booths that have their, their PS2 and their original Xbox sections, with, you know, with the exception of just a couple of the actually rare, sought after ones. They'll just be like, you know, pick any three for ten or whatever. Pick any, you know, four for ten. Dollar each, whatever. Um, So even at retro game collecting shows, it's still really cheap. So I always encourage people, if they want to just build a collection pretty quickly, I'm like, start with those consoles. There's, like, actually good games for them, plenty of them. And they're cheap. Along those lines, do you you see there being people eventually... Wanting to collect, uh, for example, like the PS2 has like 2,500 games. Anyone that would try to do a complete PS2 set or just say, oh, I want to collect subsections, maybe get all of the RPGs or all the, these certain games. Do you see there being a love for like a console like the PS2 itself versus just the titles that appeared on it? Yeah, I see. I mean, there's a ton of people I know who collect uh, just the PS2 RPGs. In fact, I'm one of them. Well, not just, but I have almost all of the PS2 RPGs. Or all the PS2 horror games, or all the PS2 uh, fighting games, or something like that. Because those are genres that the PS2 is very strong in, right? Um, but I, I haven't seen a lot of people going for a complete PS2 collection. And You know, one, because it's really daunting. Like you said, 2,500-ish games. It seems nearly impossible. Plenty of those games are, like, bad and just uncommon, too. I mean, things like... Uh, you know, some of the old or newer sports games on them, like Madden 11 came out on the PS2, and it's like $12, but why would you want Madden 11 on the PS2? <laughs> for, for most people, right? So, although I've seen a couple people go for it, I mean, I, yeah, it's it's certainly not a console that a lot of people are, are trying to collect everything for. They still may. Let's see. The, the last game was FIFA 14. Is that right? So there was a 2013 PS2 game. I think That's that was incredible. just in Brazil, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it's a daunting library, and the collectability to me, something like that, is is down for a few reasons. One, we're talking about a massive amount of sports games, just a massive yeah. amount in general. <laughs> we talk about that. Yeah, we talk about yeah. There's like 14 different FIFA games. 
have fun. There's, you know, twice as many baseball games because you have more than one company making it. Uh, it. Yeah, it's just insane. And plus, not just that, the love of these systems, going back to the exclusivity, it's like well than, well less than 50% of this library is exclusive. Oh, yeah. So you would get to that point, what exactly are you saying? You're collecting, oh, I can get this game not just on the Xbox. It was on the PC. It might also appear even on the GameCube. So it's just less and less special at that point, right? If it appears on four to five different types of, you know, consoles or PCs, to me, it doesn't make much sense to go for the full library. At least in my opinion, it's sort of like it's it, it's lost more and more that sort of special collectability of the system. Yeah, I would agree with that. I I really don't see non Nintendo systems, uh, at least the common non Nintendo systems, getting anywhere near the amount of love. That the Nintendo does. I mean, you still have you have people going for like full Turbo Graphics collections and that sort of thing, but those are sort of off the oh, beaten sure. path. Not you know, not yeah, quite that's... as common. Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. everyone had a PS2, right? It it sold 120 million units. That's insane. I mean, cheap cheap DVD player. Yeah, you had to get it back then. <laughs> so there's so many of them you out there. Too, you may be too. You, I'm not sure you remember DVDs. You're kind of young. You might <laughs> remember. Oh come DVDs. on! I remember VHS. Not that young. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a big draw back then mm-hmm. uh, because DVD players, to put in perspective, when when the PS2 came out, I think it was – was it 200 or 250 for it? Mm, I can't remember. Retail. But yeah. but, D- but DVD players were about the same amount or more. Right. So from a lot of people's perspective, this is why Sony was smart. It was like, well, you're, you're going to buy a DVD player anyway, so you're getting a DVD player with the game console. Yeah. And that was a very large draw back in like 2000 and 2001. And even if and you're not a big gamer, I mean, people yeah. who, they were going to get a DVD player anyway, and they're not a big gamer, but they're like, but you know what, I really like football. Maybe I'll just pick up the PS2 in like one Madden game, you know? I, I'll i try yeah. it out. It's the same amount of money. To, you know? I would love to know, <laughs> I would love to know if they ever released it, or, or how to know what the average amount of attach rate of games was per PS2. I can almost guarantee you that, like, there were so many, maybe like 20% of those 120 million people bought like one or two games and just right. kept it as a DVD player and they were they were satisfied with it. I mean, me personally, I think I own maybe two or three games. I got it primarily as a DVD player. Really? And I got one of those weird online deals where it's like, oh, do these like, it was one of those things that existed 15, 16 years ago and like internet barely 2.0 where it's like, oh, try all these trial offers and at the end, if you complete them all... You can get a free uh, PS2 or you get it for only 40 bucks. I actually did one of those. And it was not a scam and it didn't hell. steal your credit card info? <laughs> as far as I know, didn't. Young, plucky college Pat did not get his credit card stolen. <laughs> but you had to like go through and do all the cancellations of like – like one of them was like sending you basically – uh, speed or amphetamine, just like, oh, this is a weight loss thing. Sign up and get a free bottle. <laughs> but you got to cancel within 30 days or we'll send you another one for 20 bucks. So you had to go and cancel like eight different things. But the P- the PlayStation 2 did come. It did arrive. And I remember buying um, one of the SmackDown games. I bought like two of the SmackDown versus Raw games, like 2003 or something, 2004. Here comes the pain. One of the most famous ones in the franchise, like the second or third one they made. And um, they were great games, but I remember saying, it's like, yeah, this is great just to have a DVD player because I, I had a lot of cash when I was like 20 years old, yeah, 21. I can blow on just a $200 DVD player by itself. And even if the interface was clunky to play um, DVDs, they sold that uh, remote 
separately, you know, and that was all you needed to, in order to navigate it. So, so now we're going off on the PlayStation memories when people, <laughs> when the video game years comes back, video game years 2000, we'll talk about how that was a, a, a big one. But um, how did you get into, speaking of video game years, how did you get into the online video creation aspect of, of what you love? Uh, so it started out just me and uh, the other owner of Pink Gorilla. We started doing a podcast together. Um, we just decided, you know, we're constantly talking about all of this stuff. I mean, it's the same way everyone starts a podcast, right? Oh, we're always talking about this. We should just record it and put it on the internet. So that's that's sure. basically exactly what we did. Um, and we we argue a lot, like in, in a good-natured way, but we argue a lot. So we decided we'd do something where we're just arguing two different sides of an issue. Um, and that's not really what the podcast is anymore, but that's sort of what it began as. Uh, I think the first one we did was are toys to life here to stay or is it just a passing fad um you know we did some digital versus physical media discussions and you know i enjoyed doing that it was it was going decent enough you know considering i was basically a, a nobody you know no one had ever heard of me but i it got a handful of listens and was doing okay and then um jason uh, metal jesus had actually started listening to it and i did not know that we were like friendly acquaintances at the time we weren't friends but you know he came into the store we had good conversations you know if i saw him on the street we would smile and wave and that was that was about it but he started listening to it and he enjoyed what he heard and so he invited me to come do a couple videos with him so we did that uh those went pretty well i guess um because he kept inviting me on <laughs> so um that was really my first foray into uh, the video creation part. And, you know, I wasn't doing any of the actual creating at the time. I was just sort of, you know, show up with your knowledge and let's talk about this thing. But I was really enjoying it. And because I had gotten so into, like, the weird stuff, I was buying all of this. Uh, like, we did a video on the Wonderswan, um, which is one of my favorite consoles. And I had all of this weird stuff, and I started thinking, you know, I... I did a kind of an overview video about this, but what if I was able to go a little bit deeper into some of these really odd things I own, like the Famicom modem or, um, you know, the just things like that, right? So interesting, weird things that I didn't see a whole lot of information on online. So that was the first thing I started doing was I just wanted to talk about some history of odd objects. But I am a perfectionist, so... Instead of just talking about it and talking about what I knew, I started doing about 40 to 50 hours of research per video. Um, and, you know, if you, wow. yeah, if you see my videos, they're like six minutes long. So I do an insane amount it's of work. It's a lot packed in. Yeah, I do an insane amount of work just to bring one or two new facts, right? Like a couple things you can't find on Wikipedia, a couple things you would have to actually search through. Japanese newspapers and translate to know, right? So that's that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, and it's a lot of fun for me, but wow. it does take a really long time. So you have to go find some Japanese periodical website and then get it translated. Yeah, and I've, and I've been lucky. The information. I've been lucky because I went to the University of Washington. They've got a great, great library there. So I've been able to search through, you know, press releases from the late 80s and that sort of thing. And um, you know, the, inter the Internet Archive is another great resource. So I'll go and find old, uh, 
Japanese blog posts and find their photos and stuff of these things and their experiences and be able to to bring some of that over. But it's you know it, it takes a lot of digging. But I I like the digging part. So I don't mean that to sound like oh god it's just so much work for me. Um, I really enjoy the dig. It it just takes a long time. Give me give me one fact that you uncovered from one of your topics that you researched that was not known, at least on Wikipedia, to the larger audience. Sure. So let's let's hear it. Let's hear one. Yeah. So here's uh, one from a video that has not come out yet. So this is a oh, this is I know teaser an exciting one. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> so I'm doing a video on the Super Nintendo Entertainment bike, and I found, interesting. Yeah, I know. I wonder why. <laughs> so I found um, an article from. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, or that had a quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger, a uh, quote about the Exertainment bike from Mr. Terminator himself. That's, yeah. <laughs> it's not. That's a, insane. Yeah, it's not like a super exciting quote, but the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger was aware of the Super Nintendo Exertainment bike enough to have an opinion on it is a fun fact for me. <laughs> I think it's good that the kids are playing these games and they're using their muscles at the same time. That, that's basically uh, exactly exactly <laughs> what it was. It's, it was talking about how kids are uh, easily bored with working out and how he was excited to see how this oh. would you know, motivate them to work out more. That's actually a pretty good yeah. take on it at the time. Yeah. You know, for like the early yeah. 90s. That's, that's actually not bad. So I'll, I might I, ask you, cool. uh, might, might the, I might have to uh, maybe bribe you to maybe write something for a certain Super Nintendo guidebook talking about the extra <laughs> Sounds like you're the person to that. ask about that. We for, should for, also talk, write talk to Arnold Schwarzenegger, though, too. That would be... Oh, <laughs> yeah, if he remembers it. <laughs> you think they gave him one and he like he used it once and broke it with his massive thighs and just like crunched it and while he's playing Speed Racer on the bike and pedaling? Right. I'm not sure that's supposed to even work, by the way. You're, you're pedaling and playing Speed Racer? Pet- anyway. Yeah, it's, well, it's so like that's the great. I mean, car, I guess. <laughs> so, you want, so it's not just enough that you want to talk about the retro games. You actually wanted to add knowledge to the community and to educate you know, on a topic that you thought, oh, maybe they need to learn more about this. Yeah, so my favorite part, actually, the last video I did, and unfortunately it was a couple months ago. I, I, again, I really wish I was uploading more, but it just takes so much time. Um, the last video I did was on the uh, Sharp NES TV, you know, the TV with the built-in NES. And I did a lot of research on it, but in the very end, there were still a couple things that I could just not find conclusive proof of. You know, I, I don't want to just take someone's word for it on a blog. I want to see an actual, like, brochure that proved this existed or an ad or something like that, right? So as Without seeing it, was it, was it, was it the second version? No, no, I, that one. That one. There's proof that okay. that exists. There's pictures okay. of it and stuff. Um, but it was a, oh gosh, a Taiwanese. I think I'm gonna make myself sound stupid here because it's my own video. Um, they re-released or they released the TV, the Famicom version of it in Taiwan under a different name. Um, and all I could find proof of was one size of it, one size and one color. Now there were a couple blog posts saying that they had seen like a gold one or they had seen a different size one but I had no proof of that and I didn't want to be like yeah it totally exists because some guy in Taiwan said so you know uh, some guy said so right yeah so I don't think, so, I think I... so I said that in my video I said you know this is the only one I was able to find proof of existing um, but you know if anyone has actual proof that there was more than one color like you know as this guy says 
show it off. So sure enough, after about two days of that video being up, so, uh, some guy in Taiwan scanned his brochure that he had of this Taiwanese release of the NES TV. Um, and yeah, sure enough, both colors existed and two different sizes existed. And that so, was a Famicom, the same one the as fa- that Yeah, the one, Famicom one. So, um, okay. So, but that was exciting to me because that literally was nowhere on the internet. This guy just dug out a, pr- a brochure he personally had um, and so I was able to, by asking this question, add, I mean, you know, the most obscure, not important knowledge, whatever, but I was able to add a piece of knowledge to uh, the greater community now by, by doing that. So that's, that was like no. really encouraging for me, and I want to keep doing that and asking questions that haven't been conclusively answered to see if somebody just has it laying around, right? Sure. So, so you found it in a brochure... Does that, does that mean that it got to market and people bought it? I mean, that's the next, probably uh, the next it step. It had like prices and stuff on it. I mean, I guess if there's if there's pictures and prices, I'm going to say that at the very least it was created planned. at one point. It was right? planned. At least there was a prototype they planned for right. enough to do the brochure. Right. Sure. So at least it got to that point. But now it's, I would say, yeah, who owned it? Did anyone actually sell any? You know, if none exists, that could be an indication that maybe they didn't or it was a very limited quantity, you know. Yeah, well, that's a good point. I mean, the, the... You're getting there, though. You're, right. you're building the case. Right. Yeah. It, it's certainly more than we had, at the very least, you sure. know. It was much better than just some guy saying he saw one. Which is what always upset me about stadium events forever, was that the misinformation and false information that was out there forever about this game, where it was like, yeah, it was a test market game. It's like... What is that based on? Yeah, it was recalled by Nintendo. Right. Really? What are you basing that on exactly? And it wasn't based on anything. Yeah. It was based on absolutely nothing. Yeah, these these stories um, tend to build like that. You know, someone someone says it and you say it, you know, and then someone else repeats that and someone else repeats that and, yeah. and eventually that just becomes the story. Um, and you, say, you see that on like an extreme scale with stuff like... E.T. ruining the video game industry, you know? The fact that anyone could even believe that one game can crash an entire market is ridiculous, but, uh, you know, it's just, it was repeated enough times that, that that's what people think, right? You're talking about E.T.? Yeah. The video game crash? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and that was the wrong game to choose. They should have chose Pac-Man. They're going to choose one. <laughs> right? You know, they chose the wrong one. <laughs> you know, they cho- they chose they chose one that sounded cool on paper versus the one that made more sense. That people were massively disappointed of the arcade version versus the home console. You know, and the game that people were waiting for more so than any other video game. Yeah, probably the mid '80s. And then, but hey, we talked about that in the video game year segment about that. That was a combination of lots of factors. Oh yeah, you know, one of my that's what it comes. To- one of my favorite things that uh, the Video Game History Foundation has done, just as like you know, writing articles or whatever, is they actually compiled a bunch of the reviews of ET at the time. Um, oh and, wow! Yeah, they like just they found a ton <laughs> of reviews from different publications and magazines, and overall, it was the general consensus was like it's all right. So I don't think an all right game can crash a whole industry, right? So, anyways, that's I mean, well, a- <laughs> well all, all right for a twenty-five-year-old video game reviewer might be different than that five-year-old no, no, no. who doesn't understand that's, the game mechanics. What? I, yeah. Well, no. What I mean is like it was all right. That's what the people believed at the time. What the reviewers of the time, the publications all the way back from you know nineteen eighty-two, nineteen eighty-three. That's what they were reviewing it as. They were. They said it was pretty good when it came out. So, 
Sure. You know. But then time, time, <laughs> changes, a, time changes a story, and then a certain, you know, video game reviewers come up and do their version oh, yeah. of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, so it, it, it changes. There's, like, for, for example, just because James, as AVGN says, Ninja Turtles on the NES is a bad game, it becomes all of a sudden almost gospel to people that didn't grow up with it to say, right. oh, yeah. Ninja Turtles was a bad game. Well, no, it wasn't a bad game. It was a good game. It was in- very much enjoyed at the time. It was a very hot seller yep. when it came out. You know, it, it, that's it's revisionist history. The same way where people say, "Oh, Zelda Two is such a bad game," or it's not a real Zelda game. No, no one thought that at the time. Yeah, no one said it. Zelda Two is not a real <laughs> Zelda game. You yeah. could, I mean, no, Zelda Two was highly thought of and rated. The same with Super Mario Two. So. It, you have these different generation of gamers that they may not have grown up with it, trying to apply their current knowledge to the culture. Right, back at and the I don't, time. I don't even and always think things... it's it's their fault. I don't think that they go on there and say everyone hated this. It's more just that they hate it now, and so people apply that. They're like, oh, well, if it's bad now, it must have always been bad, right? I mean, well, it's the same game. They find that echo chamber <laughs> chamber where everyone says the game's bad. They find the right. chamber where it said, oh, Zelda Two's not a real Zelda game. Because they grew up with everything from Ocarina of Time onward. So they can't go back and play a previous game that doesn't fit with their mentality of what a quote-unquote Zelda game should be. Right. And it's just sort of a, you know, it's it's one of those weird things. But Zelda 2, I love Zelda 2. I I, I cried waiting for it to come after school. (laughs) Not bad. (laughs) But, but, you know, I didn't grow up with NES games, so the, uh, the flaws are more obvious to me playing through through later and it's the same way you know like if for people who didn't grow up with n64 they're gonna see the flaws a lot better than i do you know um all right there's there's a there's a nostalgia bias for sure but that doesn't necessarily mean that the game is bad it just means that you know a game we're gonna we're we're gonna we're gonna be throwing down over zelda (laughs) 2 no no i I think i think it's flaws i think it's a decent game i just compare decent for me, playing playing both the first Zelda and the second Zelda, um, I had more fun with the first, and this is as someone coming in, you know, decades after it was released, right? So it's it's not fair for me to rate them on the same plane because I enjoy them in different ways and I wasn't there, you know? Had I played the first Zelda and been, like, extremely excited about it in the 80s and you know awaiting for you know awaiting Zelda 2 I probably would have had a lot more fun with it I would and you know as a kid again you'd like you just have fun with the games that you like you know you like Zelda therefore of course you're going to like Zelda 2 uh, have you encountered anything being a female in the retro gaming community scene that uh, maybe a male would not have encountered whether it was working at a store or doing these videos um, you know, the the general stuff you'd probably think of. I, I get a fair amount of people who, uh, you know, would rather speak to a male coworker or something like that. But it doesn't, it's not that it happens super often, and they usually pretty quickly realize that I know what I'm talking about. Um, YouTube has surprisingly been extremely, extremely positive for me. Um, I don't get, I get some odd sexual comments but i really don't get the she doesn't know what she's talking about thing um which is nice and and i i really strive for that because you know female or not obviously i'm doing all this research i really want to come across as 
this is as complete of a story as I could possibly tell about this item, right? Like, I've done all the research. I'm now getting to the point, um, I wasn't doing this in my early videos and I really regret it, but I'm now getting to the point where I'm trying to actually source my, you know, like cite my sources and, and list where I found a lot of this stuff. Now, some of it's going to be blocked off. Um, you know, access to it is limited because I had to use like a university uh, library to get access to some of these things. You know, press releases or articles from the 1980s or something, not everyone can access that for free. Um, but I but I try to cite it anyway so that, you know, if, if you ever wanted to go inside a library and, and get access to that sort of thing, you could. And check me. <laughs> no one knows how to use a library anymore. I always say I was one of the last generations that had to do research pre-internet and then kind of use the internet for a little bit. But, yeah, it's interesting. Do you see the range of behavior and reaction towards a female retro gamer being different in person versus on Twitch or on YouTube, or is it the same sort of range of um, some nastiness? Some, ex you know, most people are cool, but there's some people that are a little bit, uh, you know, on the fringe. We'll just say. Yeah, it's it's hard to say nowadays because for I mean, the last couple of years, people have recognized me from doing stuff either on my own channel or on uh, on the Metal Jesus channel. So I don't. So you built your street cred up, so that yeah, like, okay, she's I, cool. She's think, one of us. <laughs> I, I think no one really sees me as like random female retro gamer now. I'm I'm like a, you know, they know who I am in in these like niche communities. Of course, I'm no celebrity, but in in the niche community of uh, retro game collecting, for the most part, um, I haven't run into it a whole lot anymore. Um, but I can't I can't recall a time. You know, I would love to. To like be able to play the victim card, but I well I wouldn't love to play the victim card, but I, but I, I can't really. I mean no. I haven't I haven't had a ton of negative experiences. The only negative experiences I have are like exactly what you would expect. You just have someone who um, is you, it doesn't matter who you are or what you look like. They just decided many many years ago that you can't know what you're talking about because you're a female. But it's sure. you know they're they're the minority for sure. Yeah, I think we're at a slightly different place now where I, I think in the retro gaming community, there's been less of an overall, maybe I'm being naive, less of an overall boys club mentality versus yeah. the modern gaming versus the modern gaming scene in general, maybe. Um, maybe because in general, retro gamers are a little bit older and more mature in general. Yeah. So well, a little bit more. Yeah. Who cares if she's a woman, if she likes playing retro games, you know, there's right. not like... We don't have to haze her. She has to pass some sort of like retro gaming IQ test to be one of us. You know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Know? I mean, that's what happened though when, when we got 8-Bit Alley on the video game years because we didn't know because let's be honest, there's not that many female retro gamers compared to male. No, no, there's not. It's, so, when you, so, when it's so when you go to YouTube, gamers, there's very few in general. Yeah, when it's regular yeah. gamers, it's a much more close split. But in the retro game community, yeah, there's really very, very few of us. Yeah, so we went when we got Allie on video game years, and she's fantastic. She's funny and witty, and she knows what she's talking about. Uh, you got the reactions where, oh, you just have her on because she's a woman, or you just want to have her on, you know, for this and that. And it's like, you know, it, it doesn't hurt that she's a woman. It, it, we'd rather not just have all all men on, but she actually knows what she's talking about. It's yeah. just funny. I guess know? I and get that occasionally. Some people, some people accuse Jason of, which is so odd to me. They say they that he uses me for clickbait. Um, but that's so odd to me because I, A, appear in all of the videos, so it's not clickbait, and B, I'm usually talking more than he is. So again, not clickbait because 
you're not like baiting anything. What you see in the thumbnail is exactly what you're going to see in the video. What? I was going to say, what are you baiting? The fact that you're not a guy, so I, if guys <laughs> see you, might want to click on I, it? Is I that guess, the bait? I don't know. Doesn't that, say more about the, doesn't that say more about the reaction <laughs> and calling it clickbait versus you being in the video? Like, Yeah, that's kind of a weak sort of I, self-centered it argument, never, in my opinion. Again, it, it never made any sense to me. So although although it happens sometimes, it's to me, it's always so like out of left field and doesn't make any sense and doesn't have any merit that I mostly just ignore it. It's like, you know, sure. if, if you truly think that a video that has my face on it in which I star and do most of the talking is clickbait, then, like, you just... I I don't even know how to respond to that. Yeah, like, I can't refute that. You've no, already I, made up I, your I've mind. had... <laughs> I can admit I've had clickbait thumbnails out of my videos before, so I can admit that, like, when that's happened. Uh, but I, I think it's... In general, though, I think with the internet and the Russian community, we've, we've found each other more easily. Because and obviously there's a lot more retro gamers now and collectors than there were even in 2011 versus 2008 and 2004. Right. So I mean, when I was collecting, I, I was one of maybe two people I knew, like in, re, in reality, <laughs> not on the internet, that collected games. We just didn't exist. Yeah. Um, and so when you meet more people, and it's like I think at least with the retro gaming community, when I go to a convention, I don't care, man, woman, whoever, if I see someone looking at games and appreciating that, hey, these are 30-year-old games, like, I'm like, holy shit, I found someone that yeah. thinks crazy <laughs> like me that wants to look at this dead old physical media, you know, and want to collect it and appreciate it. So I'm actually happy to see other people looking at those games and appreciate that we all come out and, you know, are sharing this love of it. I'm going to start singing Kumbaya. <laughs> no, it's 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 great. I mean, and I think the amount of retro game shows that are popping up around too is is really helping the hobby because now people are not just doing it from their homes and chatting. Maybe like you know, maybe they're in a Facebook group or something, but now they can actually go out somewhere and meet other people who collect like they do. So I think that's the biggest strength of the retro game shows to me. It's just that it's a lot. It's a lot better of an experience than just existing on these collecting Facebook groups or these, uh, you know, online communities. Oh, sure. In-person interaction is always nice. You know, it's always good to sit down. Like, for example, Segway, like we did at uh, Retro Gaming Expo with Frank Cifaldi to talk about, you know, where the future of retro game collecting might be going in physical media. And that was a very interesting conversation. We didn't always agree 100%. But, you know, it, it's it's good to, I think, address that, not elephant in the room, but, you know, where exactly, and I'll just ask you, where do you, like where the future of the retro gaming scene will be in 15 years or so, or 20 years, and where, what will retro game stores look like, and will there be as many that exist? And to me, those are very interesting questions for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's It's hard to say just because, you know... It's naive to say that everything is going to last forever, but we do have a really nice community of people who, you know, even though some people get out, it seems like they always kind of come back in a little bit. So maybe there'll be less people collecting <laughs> full sets. Uh, maybe there'll be more people shedding kind of the bulk and the price of the common games will go down a little bit. But I, I would be really surprised to see that even after 15 years that this hobby has gone away completely because it's... It's been growing since since 1999, really. I mean, when there was like World of Atari and um, the earliest earliest gaming expos or retro gaming quote unquote expos. Um, 
it's you know it's only grown exponentially from there. So I think as for game stores, it's going to be important for them to diversify a little bit because I don't think that um, you know right now we do great selling a bunch of uh, common games and um, and not common popular games like even common. Um, you know, un- unpopular games, things like Silent Service on the NES and all that. Like, those still sell. And I think they're... <laughs> I love Silent Service. I think... Actually, it's a good game. Once you learn how to play. <laughs> I think there may be a point eventually um, where those won't pay the bills anymore. You know, those won't be able to move quite so much. So being able to offer other things to your customers is going to be important. I mean, you know, we sell, like, trading cards magic and pokemon and that sort of thing and and even something like that is going to is going to help out the overall health sure. of retro game stores you know sure so, sort of following the same trend of gamestop we walk into a modern gamestop less and less of it's actually video games where you have right. a lot of uh, think oh, geek, yeah. think geek items they're, they're owned by the same parent company you have t-shirts you have the little little mega man 8-bit pixel figure sitting there you have the star wars lamps and stuff like you know what i mean like it's you have to diversify it's a celebration of geek culture in this case i always talk about how something like the retro gaming expo will transform gradually into more of a celebration of the culture of retro gaming not necessarily just collecting physical media that existed 20 and 30 years ago, it'll be, oh, well, I love Super Mario Brothers and I love Legend of Zelda. I love arcades. And that's right. what it becomes. It's sort of a gradual shift. As children grow older, they'll at least love the culture, if not the physical media of a 30-year-old console, which is just as important. It's more important to love the art behind, I think, those games and what it means culturally. Oh, yeah, I think that's absolutely. where we're headed. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, being able Hancock, to... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, like, when I spoke to John Hancock, he's definitely seen um, a halt in the progression of prices, at least for like NES games, and you alluded to that. Um, and he thinks it peaked in like summer 2016. And some of the evidence does bear that out, that for a chunk of the games, they tapered off and have come down since then. Even popular stuff like Contra, uh, right. for example, or, Duct- or DuckTales, where they hit their peak, the frenzy's over. Now it's sort of leveled off. And this was the first year in 2000. I'd say 2017 was the first year that I saw NES games starting to be treated like the common Atari 2600 games that you can't give away. It was the first year where I saw dollar bags of NES games or $2 or 6 for 10 First year yeah. I saw it happen was 2017. I can say and, that with confidence. That I saw is... that in multiple conventions. And and that's super new, like like you said. I mean, that was definitely not, um, you know, we're still able to sell in a game store a lot of the really common games just to people who pick up, you know, maybe they pick up their childhood stuff, but some of them are collectors, and then some of them are like, you know what, I'm going to pick up, like, one random game that I don't remember or something like that. Um, and so they, they still sell okay, but, you know, yeah, the fact that you're starting to see them do some of the uh, kind of how Atari games are treated, like you said. Um, I wonder if that means it's going to hit that place that Atari's hit, or if it, you know, or if it'll still stay a few steps above that. My my feeling, yeah, my it's gut interesting feeling question, is the latter. Because, but. 
Atari, I mean, Atari games are much more primitive. They don't have the characters right. easily recognizable. Atari's basically dead as a company. I don't care how many Atari boxes or watches they throw yeah. out there. No one really, <laughs> truly cares about them. You know, so you're always going to have, oh, it's on the NES. It's always going to think going to mean something because we uh, more than 2600. Because when you think of retro gaming, almost everyone immediately goes to the NES as the primary retro gaming yep. system. For the most part, that might change in 10 years, but for now, it's still the NES. But that said, there are a lot of games that they made a ton of on the NES that no one refers back to anymore as saying, I want to play or collect that game. For example, Silent Service, they sold a ton of them. That was a very popular game in the 80s, but no one necessarily wants to go back and play it on the NES. No one really wants to go back and play Bases Loaded or Bases Loaded 2. Anymore. Right. I have probably time, 80 but... copies of NES Play Action Football. So, Exactly. <laughs> now, now, these aren't necessarily all terrible games. I think I rated Play Action Football two stars in a certain NES guidebook. But does anyone want to play it or own it anymore? And when you, once, you, once you get a bunch of those type of games... Either either sit you sit on them forever at three four dollars, or you move them at a dollar and hopefully someone buys them. Like all those copies of Missile Command for the twenty six hundred or Combat that exists, right? Or Pac Man you can't sell. I do think that will happen. Maybe not for the majority of the NES library, but for a couple hundred NES games, absolutely it's possible. Yeah, that we'll get to that point. Not saying Contra's ever going to be a two dollar no, game. No, no, of course not. But I mean, there's still plenty of but, Atari games that are... Well, there's plenty of Atari games that are worth a ridiculous amount. And then there's plenty in that mid-range that will probably never dip much below $8 sure. or so, you know? Um, but, but, yeah. But, but, but Centipede? Right. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's definitely... Um, it's definitely starting to skew that direction, but... But I agree with you that I don't think it's ever like the whole library is never going to hit yeah. Atari levels. I think it it'll probably just be the silent services and the NES play action footballs and the bases loaded, you know, on that library that are gonna maybe, you know, wind up in the fifty cent dollar bin eventually. I think you might get we might disagree a little bit. I think you'll get a little bit above that where you're gonna get maybe those games that might be fun and somewhat coveted, but they just made soup like just too many of them to exist. You know, or at least they don't care about it anymore. Like, okay, like Robocop. Sure. You know, it's like it's not a terrible game. There's some value to owning Robocop, but I'm not gonna pay seven dollars for Robocop. Right. You know, it's cause who's gonna do that? Not many people. Or like or like bad dudes. Like bad dudes yeah. is a, a kind of a game people <laughs> know, but is that going to be a $10 game ever? Probably not. You know, it's it's just, there's certain games. But yeah, I don't think it's going to be like the Atari, though, where the majority of the library becomes a dollar or $2 game. Yeah. Where it's like all these common games are not worth anything and you can't give them away. Like when I was in a, I was at Classic Game Fest in, in Austin and there was literally, it had to be over 1,000 to 1,200 Atari games in gigantic boxes that were like, four feet high boxes by like six feet. There was four of those boxes filled with, filled with 2,600, some 5,200 and Atari computer games, a dollar each. Like you could, you could have drowned in them. No, 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 a dollar each per, per, per game, per game. Every, I need, not for a dollar for the whole box. You would buy it and and hopefully make your money back. Yeah. Like I'll just sell a dollar, but a dollar per game. A dollar per game for yeah. a thousand games that they've compiled this probably this game store over the past ten years that no one wants. 
They just don't want them. And yeah, I feel bad when people. I feel bad when people bring in Atari games, and you know, I, I try to. I usually have a longer discussion with them than I do with other people because I, in no way, want to rip anyone off, um, and I don't want to make anyone feel like what they had or their childhood is like worthless. Um, so what I usually do is I, I bring out one of my giant Tupperware boxes full of Atari games, and I say, you know what, like, these are cool, and if, you know, if there's a couple games in there, like maybe Taz or Burger Time or something like that, where it's like um, worth six or seven dollars instead of I can't give it away, um, then I'll pay fair <laughs> on those. But everything else, I'm like, I, I like at this point can't even pay you for combat. Like I have, I have like two hundred yeah. copies, and I will never sell any of them. They don't even sell at fifty cents. Like I cannot, <laughs> you know. You don't need you don't need Atari Circus. You have enough of those. Yeah. Right? Or so there's backgammon or was backgammon one? one of those yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and for things that I have less than five copies of, I'll still I will totally still pay for them and stuff. It's just you know for stuff like combat. I I'm at the point where I can't justify spending really anything on them anymore. And so I and I tell them like, "Hey, you are under no obligation to like, you know, please by all means try to go find someone who will pay good money for these. I just, you know, here is what I have. Here's what I haven't been able to move for years and years. So I can't I can't. I'm sorry, you know. But, I but hope they both will understand and just start yelling at yeah, you. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. No, 99% of the time it, it goes well yeah. and they understand. Um, you you know, you have the occasional person. But I, I try to be as fair as possible and sometimes it's just it's just not super possible with Atari games. And and that's really the only system at this point that that is like that. I mean, even for 5200 games, like, there's, there's still some worth in some of those. Um, or even the crappy NES games with, you know, just a couple exceptions. I can still, well, I, and I'll, I'll pay something for any NES game, of course. But you know, there's almost everything else, even the common stuff, even Madden '94, all of that stuff. I can still totally pay people for. It's fine. But combat for that, Atari that, 2600. <laughs> but. But but each system though has their own combats, right? So I mean, are you really going to accept like World Series Baseball two thousand three on PS two? I mean, are I you am. Really, is someone, I mean, there's is someone not going to buy that. You will. Well, I don't. I am under the like. I my policy is not to turn away anything. Um, okay. But I do try to tell people if you know if they come in and they think that what they have is worth a lot of money, and it turns out it's a stack of sports PS two games. Although I will still buy it from them, I again try to give them the same like hey you know i sell these for a dollar and they never sell type things you know so like just don't expect to be getting rich off of this i'm still going to give you something for it i'm not going to just give you know hand you a paper clip and expect it's, you to walk away but um you know it's <laughs> it going to be like funko land funko funko land they give you 10 cents for mario duck hunt in like the mid to late nineties, that's like yeah. That's really I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a lot better about that because Mario. At least Mario is still popular. Like, yes, do I have thirty copies of it? Yes, but that's okay because people still buy it. You know, um, so I, I can certainly still afford to to pay people, you know, four or five bucks for it because it's something that's still 
still sells. And maybe I'll be wrong. And you know, one of these days, like like you're saying, that'll be one of the can't give it away games. But I I just kind of doubt it because it's Mario, and people are always going to want always going to want yeah, Mario that's for the something. Thing. You know. I think there's, you're always going to have those games where I mean, my it, this is my always Pat's theory about looking at the games that collectors want versus the modern culture. And I always maintain that the, a game like Steam Events, a hundred years from now, not many people will care about. But you know what? If someone has a sealed first edition original Super Mario Brothers, that could be it. Like that yeah. could be the culturally significant piece that is worth a million dollars a hundred years from now. Like that could be the game. Because people will still care about it 100 years from now. And they won't care about Flintstones Dinosaur Peak that much or Steam events. Or, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah, what does that mean? Like, who cares? Oh, wow. The game was rare 100 years ago. It's like, okay, why, do, why should I care if it was rare back then, if the game's not that good? Yeah. No, like, that's, a, that's a great point. The, because the culture is certainly shifting the way that, um, that the, the market is working, you know? I mean, not to say that. Prices on popular things have necessarily gone up a lot, or at least not any more than anything else. Um, but you are definitely getting a lot more people who are in it just for kind of a short-term hobby. They want to play, you know, they never go into the actual collecting part. They do just want to pick up what they had as a kid, maybe pick up one or two other games to try them out, and then... And then they're done. Maybe they sell it back. Maybe they keep it around for when they have friends over, and they can be like, "Hey, remember Banjo Kazooie?" and and yeah. you know, bring it out. But um, but not everyone. In fact, most people entering this hobby, I would say, are probably not collectors. Which which again goes back to maybe people getting just the popular games or the sets. Like you'll have maybe on each system the core forty or so games that these are what ninety percent of the people want. Right. The ones, the popular games that they want. Like, you can even boil it down to N64. There's probably only 15 to 20 games that people actually will ask It's for true. That's out of very the entire true. library. Yeah. And then 50 years from now, who cares about that rare variant? Because I didn't grow up with it. Maybe my grandfather did, but he didn't care. You know, like, so, right. but yeah, I'll play Ocarina of Time 75 years from now. Yeah. Because no, that's I'd... regarded as a classic still. That's completely right. I mean, unless a game is actually really uncommon or really rare, even on the N64, which right now is, you know, a very popular system. Um, most of the non-Nintendo games or non-rare games, um, like rares in the company, not rares in its rarity, um, you know, most of the not fondly nostalgic, you know, childhood uh, remembered games are 10 bucks or less, you know? Sure. So... It, I mean, that's probably just going to be the way it stays with a lot of with a lot of systems. You see the really rare stuff that's for collectors, and those are, you know, fifty to two hundred, whatever, one thousand dollars. Those are going to be really rare. Then you've got things that hold their value pretty well because people still like them, including non-collectors. Things like, you know, on the N sixty four, Ocarina of Time, and Banjo Kazooie, and those types of Golden things. Goldeneye, Mario exactly, Kart, exactly, yeah. Um, and then you have just the random. It doesn't even necessarily have to be sports games. It can be like Armorians yeah. or, you know, um, there's a couple that are kind of in that mid area, like Cruising USA or something like that, where some people fondly remember it, but there's still just so many of them out there that it doesn't really sure. make it expensive. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons of stuff on every system that's like that that's just going to be sub $10 forever. 
and maybe that's where it plays out going forward for all the systems even now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like you talk about Wii, you're going to have the 20 games that people cared about and the shovelware will be worthless. Right. Or you won't give it away. Um, Plus, be, there's you know, there's a couple... For... And there's a couple, like, rare shovelware things that as long as there are still collectors, those games might still have some value, but... Um, they might but care yeah. about them, sure. If, if, if you have a Wii collector 20 years from now trying to complete a set... They're going to search those out, so those might maintain the value, but you're going to have 80% of the games just drop yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's going to be like, well, who's really searching out after the shovelware that they produced a billion of them? Where if I go to the swap meet uh, next week, you still find like sometimes boxes of shovelware new like because they just made so yeah. many of it. Anyone put the game out. It was almost like the Atari 2600 with the crash where, hey, you make a game for the Wii to make money, put out that cheap game. Yep. You know, just put it out. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's almost how it was. Didn't yeah, cause a crash, that's a good though. point. It just that's crashed, a good point, actually. Kind of crashed the Wii U a bit. Yeah. It, it <laughs> so are just, you excited? It... Speaking of... <laughs> oh, no. Go ahead. I was going to say, are you excited by this resurgence of Nintendo with the Switch? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like most people, you know, I, I don't want to call myself like a Nintendo fanboy or anything, but um, I, I certainly grew up with Nintendo and like everyone, have fond memories of Nintendo games. So, of course, you know, I'm going to be excited that they're still doing well into uh, 2018. But the Switch is a console, for me personally, that feels like it was built for me. It feels like it was built... I know, like, uh, like all Nintendo stuff, it's for everybody. It's for all ages. But in my head, the Switch is really built with, like, the adult in mind. Someone who doesn't have a ton of time to spend in front of a TV every day, has lots of places to go to and from, maybe they've got like a doctor's appointment, they've got to go on the bus, all these things in their daily life. Um, but, you know, they're still, they're still gamers, they still want like a good uh, a console that's going to be more powerful than, you know, like a DS or something, right? So I love the Switch so much because I play things primarily in handheld mode if I can because I'm on the go so often. Um, so although I like that I can dock it, um, I, my Switch is mostly in handheld mode, and I just I love that I can take it with me, and it's an actually pretty powerful console as opposed to, you know, all the other handhelds we've seen so far. I mean, the, the Vita's decently powerful, but um, but it's been really exciting for me to see that handhelds are getting sort of a, like the adult treatment. They're not just like a, a toy that you take on the go. They're like, no, we're going to put real full games on this. We're going to put Doom, we're going to put Skyrim, we're going to put a full Zelda um, that's yeah. huge on it, you know? I, I think it's interesting that they retapped into a market that everyone forgot about, uh, basically. But yeah, like the handheld market, which was always strong with the 3DS. Right. You know, but then they managed through the marketing to re- go back to maybe a generation ago that hasn't had a Nintendo system since maybe the Wii or even GameCube. Or even before that, and say, hey, Nintendo's around still. Check out the, what we got now. Check out the Zelda game. Check out Mario Odyssey. Mm-hmm. So you got 30 and 40 year olds like, hmm, interesting. I want to buy this system. It's, it's got the little docking thing, and I haven't seen that before. So it's almost, to me, it was almost like the Wii U had to fail miserably for the Switch to be a success. Yeah. And there's, you wouldn't and have there's one still, Wii without the other. Right. And there's still plenty of things wrong with the Switch. I mean, Nintendo's still behind on the times when it comes to online play. Yeah. Um, they haven't launched but, <laughs> their their online service really yet. Yeah, they haven't launched it. You know, there's so many features that the Xbox One and the PS4 have that the Switch doesn't, which is disappointing. But but for me, I mean, the biggest thing about 
game consoles is always the games, right? I mean, that seems pretty obvious, but I think people forget that sometimes, and they get lost in the specs and the um, and the features and that sort of thing. But you know, games are really what's the most important draw for most people getting a console. So the fact that they're bringing these sort of adult uh, not necessarily adult as in like you know rated M games, but games that really feel like they can be enjoyed by you know the same way that you're enjoying games on an Xbox One or a PS4. These really long, complete games. They don't necessarily have like. I mean, I play a lot of JRPGs, but you know you can fit the anime graphics and that sort of thing on a 3DS. But something more intense, graphically intense than that, something a little bit more. Uh, yeah, adult is the word I keep using, but I don't know if that's the right word. But <laughs> uh, it seems like it's it's kind of grown up a little bit with the Switch. Oh, sure, that that, that makes sense, and it's something that is a new party system with the Joy Cons, and so Nintendo hit upon that that the other mm-hmm. major competitors were totally ignoring having a in person party console that really hasn't existed in a long time, and uh, yeah. It's it's been a gigantic hit, and Nintendo along those lines has recognized the retro gaming community and the value of producing more Super Nintendo classics yep. and bringing back the <laughs> NES classic, and then also offering an online sort of Netflix service with their when they eventually roll it out on the Switch. So they're learning more quickly than I thought they ever would have, and actually yeah. correcting errors, which is uh, yeah good news I, for that's, us. That's the important part. I don't mind you know i don't cut off a company forever when they make a really horrible mistake i mean everyone remembers that xbox one e3 announcement right but they corrected everything that you know people were pissed and they went okay people are pissed we're going to go back on all of these things then and revise them so as long as you're doing that then i mean i can't really ask for anything more right just just listen listen to the people and what they what you know the frustrations they have and try to correct them yeah, I still think I picture myself Reggie with a baseball bat like Negan going over to Nintendo Japan and just smashing it down the table and saying, you're going to make more Super Nintendo Classics. You will make more NES Classics. Yeah. And they said, okay, Reggie, all right. He's crazy. <laughs> he's nuts. Because he's more in tune, they're more in tune Nintendo America where you are with what's going on here versus in Japan. So I think they just had to communicate and they probably butted heads for a while. And plus the shareholders probably got involved and said, we're, we're throwing away money not making as many of these as we possibly can. Yep. Like, that's what we're doing. Like, they would have sold 10 million NES Classic Editions if they made them last Christmas in 2016. And they said they made two. They made two million. Yeah. It's like, come on. Man. So what's what's next for uh, you on your channel besides your, 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 your well, you revealed some of it, what's going on with yeah. the entertainment video. So the next couple videos um, are going to be that. And then I also went to the National Video Game Museum in Frisco, Texas over uh, – over like the Christmas time, I went a little bit before Christmas, um, so I'm gonna do. Interesting. Yeah, have you been there? No, I always forget when I go to Retropalooza in Arlington. It's not too far. Yeah, no, it's not far thinking, from Arlington at all. You might have seen someone shooting a certain documentary out there because I think they were out there around Christmas or right afterwards. It could, the oh, really? Could have been oh, that's funny. Potentially. Well, oh, I, yeah. I got. Um, I met John Hardy, who is one of the museum's founders at uh, Portland Very Retro. Nice yeah, super nice guy. And so I just, I basically just emailed him when I was, um, you know, a couple weeks out, and I said, "Hey, I'm coming in town. Um, 
you know, would love to see you and see the museum and that sort of thing. So he ended up giving me just kind of like a full tour, um, showed me a little bit of the like secret back room area, which is sounds really cool and exciting, but you know, it's it's mostly just storage, right? So um, okay, but <laughs> but I'm so I'm doing a video on that about you know what the museum is like. It's not a full tour because I obviously don't want to take away anyone who's like on the fence about going. If you can see absolutely everything, what's the point in going? So I'm leaving leaving some of it out, of course, but um, showing off some of the exhibits and some of the really, really cool stuff they have there. Um, and then talking a little bit about what I saw in the, the back room. He obviously didn't let me film back there, but, um, but there were a couple interesting things back there. I picture it being like uh, Digital Press in New Jersey, my one of the largest and one of my most favorite retro gaming stores I've ever been to. Downstairs, you have enough stuff downstairs to open probably two more retro gaming stores, like <laughs> just in storage. It's insane. Well, that's uh, that's Joe Santulli's store, isn't it? He also yes, it is. He's also one Mr. of the Santulli. founders of uh, um, of the National Video Game Museum. So that's cool. Him, him and uh, him and Sean Kelly. Yep. Yep. So I've known, I've known Joe Santulli for like almost ten years. Probably have you really? Wow, he seems like a really. I've not met him, but he seems like a really nice guy. Oh, he's he's an OG of the collecting scene yeah. and opening up oh, yeah. game stores and yeah, he's a great guy. <laughs> he he lived down. He was help. He was helping live in Texas and he went back to Jersey to run the shop yep. again. I think a year or two ago. Yeah, it's uh, now just back. John down there. But uh, but he seems to be so that, that's good and and you'll be uh, streaming on Twitch as well some stuff in the future yeah I'm I'm streaming once a week this is a totally new thing for me I've never streamed before and I'm definitely still getting the hang of it um, I'm mostly I started the stream because I really want to stream Monster Hunter when it comes out it's a game I've been playing for a long time and the new one um, is especially awesome got to play you know the demos that have come out the last couple weekends so um, I think. That's sort of what it's gearing up to, because that's a more exciting game than what I've been playing recently, which is mostly just like JRPGs, which don't stream very well. <laughs> but um, yeah, so once a week streaming, it, it may increase eventually. But the reason I got into streaming was because I know my YouTube video doesn't, or my YouTube channel doesn't put out videos very often. So I want to make sure I still have something I'm doing that people can engage with so I'm not you know I'm not just someone who pops up every month or two with one video is that the future you think that's the future where even if you have someone like me on YouTube that you know like the stay events video will come out something like that can only come out once every two to three months because of all the time goes into it so while that's going on you just go to you just go to twitch and hang out and play games yeah and see your face and well, yeah. um, I know you've had uh, Norm on your the gaming historian on your podcast here, and I think that's sort of what he does because his videos also, you know, similarly take a very long time to research and write and produce. Um, and I know he streams now too. And I, I'm not sure if that was his motivation for doing it or not, but I would imagine it's. I mean, it seems likely, right? Like for someone who can't put out a video every single week or twice a week. Um, that it's just another way to make sure that you're putting your face out there and, and, and getting probably a little bit of extra income too. I haven't, I, it's, I have not made a whole lot of money on Twitch yet, but you know, it was, I've, I've gotten a handful of donations and I'm thankful for that. So it was, it was something, right? Something to motivate me to continue sure. going. 
it's also a good excuse to play games for fun. I mean, I'm used to in my line of work and for working on these books, like uh, it's it's fun, but it's still work. Right. So at least with Twitch, I mean, people there's a lot of people treat it as a job, but at least you're playing games for fun and you have an mm-hmm. audience there. They're in the chat. They're having fun. So it actually appeals to me a lot more than I originally thought about it even a couple of years ago where I was like, for example, I was always kind of down in general on Let's Play videos, you know, uploaded to YouTube because to me, the value of those wasn't, there wasn't like to me an inherent value of that. But with Twitch, where it's a live performance and people were hanging out, that at least means something to me. And that's something I always liked doing, going back to all these NES marathons we do once a year. I actually like playing these games. It's just, you know, maybe you make it more of a regular part of your life. You build a community that way off of YouTube and the Twitch community, by and large, is far more positive, at least in my estimation and knowledge than the the uh, YouTube community they can be a little nasty on YouTube sometimes yeah. as you might know yeah I've, I've, <laughs> I've only had positive I mean again I've only streamed twice but so far it's been nothing but positive so you know knock on wood but but it seems to be going well so far well great where can people find you on Twitch and on YouTube um so I, I wish I had kept it all all the branding consistent but it's a little bit different so my my YouTube <laughs> is just Kelsey Lewin so it's you know youtube.com slash Kelsey Lewin or you can just search my name um on twitch i am uh twitch.tv slash tentacles so it's like the word tentacles but in but k-e-l-s like my name um okay and then on twitter i'm at kels lewin so similar to my youtube channel it branding's all over the place unfortunately i <laughs> wish i had been a little bit more consistent uh, i'll put a link or two down there people <laughs> will find you. and of course you are running the awesome Pink Gorilla Games in two locations in the Seattle area. So if you're around there, you know, check out Pink Gorilla. They're good people. And yeah. a certain NES guidebook is there for sale. It, it is. Too, and so I, I work <laughs> like five days a week. So sometimes people are surprised to see me there. I'm like, no, this is this is my job. I do, <laughs> do have to be here. So um, That's how you make that money so you can buy those weird, weird esoteric exercise yeah. Super Nintendo bikes. I yeah. Mean, Otherwise, you can't do that. <laughs> well, well, Kelsey, it was great, great, uh, great talking with you. I hope to see you again at a convention or two this year. And uh, yeah, I'll keep up with your work online. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. And that's it for this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. Thanks again to Kelsey for speaking to me this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on YouTube or on your podcast platform of choice, whether it's Stitcher iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, or whatever you use to listen to them. You can like the podcast, leave a comment to help give it a boost, and also feel free to share your experience on social media. Follow me at PatTheNESPunk on Twitter. And also, I have a Patreon if you want to help directly support me and my work. It's patreon.com slash Thanks, and I'll see you next time.